Welcome to the Portage County Safety Council podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's safety chat. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Nick Coya, and I'm here with the Portage County Safety Council. And with me today is Mike Thompson, our manager of the Safety Council. Mike, how is it going? Good. How's it going, Nick? It's going well. And we are here with a special guest, Marissa Scott, talking about noise, hearing conservation, and noise monitoring. Marissa works for SafeX, and she has a master's from the University of Toledo. She's an industrial hygienist, certified industrial hygienist, living out of Columbus, right here in the central part of Ohio. So we're really lucky to have her close by and joining us on this podcast today. She recently gave a presentation at the Portage County Safety Council, and it was so good that we said, you know what, she's got to come back for round two and do a podcast with Mike and I. So Marissa, welcome. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Thank you. You hit kind of on the main points. I am born and raised in Toledo. So that's where I went for both my undergraduate and graduate degrees. Um, My master's is in occupational health and industrial hygiene. About a year and a half ago, we relocated the the Columbus area. So about the same week that Ohio shut down is when we bought and sold a house and got new jobs. So my husband and I have had an interesting year and a half transitioning into living in Columbus because it's the both it's like a new place for both of us. So it's been an interesting year, but a fun one at that. Learning how to um, do consulting. So prior to this, I spent time in automotive manufacturing and in refining, doing health and safety. Awesome. That's great to hear. You know, noise is, is, a, is a fun topic to talk about because it affects all of us, both at work and at home. I don't think we realize the impacts of it sometimes. And oftentimes we don't realize the impact till it's too late. You know, I talk often about when we have these noise conferences about my dad who worked in a factory that never wore hearing protection. And the running joke is, you know, when dad's home, because three houses up, you can hear the news blaring out the front door. And he will tell you to this day that he can hear perfectly fine. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's um, one of my more favorite workplace hazards to talk about because with the correct steps in place, hearing loss is completely preventable. So I think as daunting as it can be to kind of implement a program from scratch, I think that there's you know a ton of benefit in in doing some proactive measures to keep people's hearing safe. Because like you said, you know once once you lose it, there there isn't really much you can do to get certain kinds of hearing back. So it's important to protect it on the front end. Well, and, you know, there's pieces out there, there's PPE, there's programs that companies should be doing. But unfortunately, we see that doesn't happen often in the workplaces. And it's led to OSHA issuing a national emphasis program, which makes this talk even more important right now, because we're seeing a push from OSHA about we need to make sure we're protecting our workers. What are you hearing about this new national emphasis program being rolled out? So inspections started, I believe, on September 1st, so they may have already. I don't know if I personally have had any clients reach out saying that they've been selected for random inspection, but pretty much all summer, um, we've been being contacted by a lot of different clients um, in the area and making sure that all of their programs are up to date, their, you know, their 300 logs are current, they've had their annual hearing testing done, and if they haven't had a noise study done, um, do they need to have one done? So we've we've seen a good bit of activity over the last couple of months with people trying to make sure that they got their you know eyes dotted and T's crossed. That way, if they are selected for a random inspection, um, that they're prepared to do so. And I, I my impression is that that kind of priority is going to be based on um, industry codes. And if you have hearing loss recordable cases at higher rates than you should in your industry, that's kind of the groups that OSHA is going to head towards first for inspection. Speaking of the National Emphasis Program, let's talk a little bit about then what is required of the employer? What do they need to have in place? 
Can I just, you know, say, hey, everybody wear hearing protection, I'm undone? Or is it a little more in-depth than that? It's, it's a little more in-depth than that, although that would be better than nothing, certainly. So if you do have employees exposed to sound levels at or above the OSHA action level, which is 85 decibels over an eight-hour time-weighted average, then you have to have a hearing conservation program put in place. And that program includes lots of different things. So like I mentioned, you know, getting your hearing tested annually, having a written program, a program administrator that would be responsible for making sure that all of, you know, these pieces are up to date, that you have adequate hearing protection provided to the workforce. Sometimes people have everyone at the facility in hearing protection or sometimes only certain groups in a company may be required because I might work in, you know, one area and then, you know, two or 300 yards away, it might be a completely different climate as far as the level of sounds present. So it kind of depends on the nature of a business, if it's going to be an all or nothing type enrollment in the program, because um, it may only be certain people that are above that action level. Like some, you know, someone that's working in the office isn't necessarily going to have the same amount of exposure as someone working, you know, in a metal stamping press for example. So it kind of depends how comprehensive it needs to be, but there's certainly kind of five or six key elements as far as, you know, monitoring, hearing testing, training, written program, that type of stuff would be required. So really the first step to this for an organization that has absolutely nothing right now, they're listening in on this podcast and they go, well, we don't have anything. We just know it's loud is getting those sound samplings done and identifying almost mapping the factory, right? Or the production area to see where your noise level's at and what do we need to do to deal with those noise levels? Yeah, if you have area noise below the action level, then in theory, you wouldn't have time-weighted averages over the action level. So really, you know, you would be looking for instantaneous levels above 85 or at 90, and that would definitely trigger, you know, the, the need to have personal sampling done on employees working in that area. Now, I know I often tell uh, employers when I'm consulting with them, if I got to raise my voice to talk to you next to you, that's that's an indication right there yep. that it's probably time for some noise sampling, right? Yep. Rule of thumb is three feet. So if you are raising your voice to talk to someone, I like to say about arm arm's length. So we got our, our COVID arm lengths away from each other. <laughs> if you're raising your voice to try and speak to someone, then yes, that that's an indication that you're probably above 85, which is the threshold to kind of get all of this requirements um, rolling. Now, hearing protection is important in there, but I also believe and I support for companies to really look at the long game, right? It's about the hierarchy of controls and hearing protection can work. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute with noise reduction ratings and how they actually can be effective or not effective for your employees. But engineering is the ultimate goal, right? We want to find a way to get the sound out of the place, be it with some type of insulating devices or changing out equipment to, mm -hmm. to really engineer out the problem. Yes, I think hearing protection is certainly the last option in protection. So I wouldn't even put it high on the list at all. It's at the very bottom. So, you know, the best thing, like you said, you can do is is to eliminate the noise. And that might even go back as far in the process as purchasing quieter equipment, locating people as far away from noise sources as you can, having robust preventative maintenance programs, because sometimes you have parts that are loose or vibrating or squeaky or just failing in any sort of way. And if you don't have good PM programs, that can increase noise. And all of these things kind of add together over the course of an entire day to create an environment where you would be over that action level. So there are tons of different solutions for reducing noise before you get to hearing protection because 
uh, you know, if you have any discussion with the health and safety professional, they're always going to say, you know, PPE really is, is a last resort because the hazards still exist. I'm, I'm still being exposed to the noise and maybe I forgot to put on my hearing protective devices or I'm chewing gum and they are, you know, losing and gaining a seal inside of my ear. Or maybe, you know, my workplace doesn't offer a pair that's comfortable because I've worn lots of earplugs that are super itchy. So I really like foam ones. I don't like silicone ones because the silicone ones, I just take them out because they, they itch and I tend to bring my own when I'm visiting places. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons that PPE fails. And if there's no noise, then we don't need to worry about it. Any of those potential failures. You know, I often talk to some employers too, because we talk about safety culture and just within the company and getting the proper equipment can be more than just saving on buying um, hearing protection. Because we also have the annual testing. We got to do the paperwork, the time, the energy. But more than that, a, a facility I recently worked with is a plastics factory and they do a lot of grinding. And they found a set of grinders out of Chicago that would actually operate below the noise level. And so their grinders were 40, 50 years old. They're antiquated. They had a lot of PM costs to them. They were very noisy. They were not efficient. They brought in new grinders and they found that it was more effective less PM costs. So there were savings across the entire board. So sometimes this helps us to look at that beyond just the savings of earplugs because there's so much more cost to this. You might be able to afford and pay for that capital improvement in the facility. Yeah. And sometimes it's not always expensive. I mean, it's not, you know, we need to sound insulate an entire building. It's, you know, maybe we need to buy a different air wand that's $50 and not, you know, 50,000 or however much it would be to do capital type improvements. So I think you know, purchasing grinders or chisels or anywhere where you're using pneumatic tools with kind of air, most of those, when you buy them now, you can look up the amount of noise that they produce online. It's included like in their spec sheets frequently. So that's, it's definitely not in that regard for intermittent noise, not something, you know, where you just have like loud ambient noises or pieces of, you know, big pieces of equipment that you can't necessarily get rid of. Um, things that are intermittently producing noise throughout someone's day, they're definitely, you can you can look at options to buy quieter ones that are not not that much more expensive. I think another area that's often overlooked in, in noise control is airlines. You know, we have these air compressors running, they have noises to them, but it's more than that. It's all the leaks of the airlines. Yeah. yeah. And, the, you know, there's, we, we talk about this out of our service office. There was a facility that did this airline um, inspection and they had this company come in and find all the leaks. And it was really expensive. And the CEO was like, why am I paying for this? This is stupid. Well, A, we got rid of your noise level, but B, the energy efficiency that came out of that by not continually cycling that air compressor paid for itself in a couple months. Mm -hmm. So that's that's an area that's pretty low hanging fruit that people don't often think about is all the air leaks. Yes, definitely. So let's talk a little bit. We did talk a little bit about PPE, but I want to dive into that a little bit more and talk about the, the fact that what we see on the package for protection isn't really what those earplugs do for us, right? So if we know we're 10 decibels over and we find an NRR rating for an earplug of, of 15, is that really going to get us to where we need to be? Or is there a better calculation for that? Yeah, so not quite. So because of some of the failures that I was mentioning earlier, like, you know, the earplug not fitting properly or, um, I don't know, maybe you uh, have an earache or you didn't, you didn't insert it right. Maybe it doesn't fit. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why hearing protection might not work for me as well as it did in the lab when they created that noise reduction rating number. So the NRR is something that is done in a lab-based settings, kind of under perfect ideal circumstances as far as fit and use would go. And if I had earplugs and talking to you as my jaw moves 
as you know, my facial features change, I can wiggle the earplugs inside of my ears. Or if you've ever worn earplugs, especially kind of the ones that you roll up and insert, they kind of uh, like squeeze themselves out over the course of time and you have to take them out and re-put them back in. So the, the noise reduction rating on the package certainly is not representative of how many decibels that those earplugs are reducing me at work. Maybe, you know, me perfectly fitted in the lab. Absolutely. But in reality, you know, OSHA recommends calculating an effective NRR, and that's called an ENRR. Um, and to do that, the kind of the industry standard is to minus seven from the original number. So usually earplugs, you know, have NRR somewhere between 20 and 33-ish. So the first step is to minus seven and then also... Um, reduce it by 50% or divide by two to get the actual NRR. And then, you know, if you're, I don't know, somewhere where it's 95 decibels, your earplugs are 30, you take away seven, divide by two, um, more so you have not a reduction of 30, but um, more like in the 20-ish range. Because, you know, in all of it, you're kind of taking with, you know, a grain of salt, because again, there's all of those kind of failures that can be applied. So really you want to have, you know, kind of a plus or minus two, even after you calculate the ENRR, but, you know, minus seven divided by two is the the standard practice for calculating what the actual reduction rating is of the earplugs rather than the NRR that's on the package. And Nick, this reminds me of a story you told our safety council a couple of years ago, where you're working with a company and the safety manager kind of gave up as an, on his employees wearing hearing protection. And you went up to him and just asked a simple question. How come you're not wearing them? And they said they can't hear and their job required them to communicate. And so you're able to kind of solve the issue by getting noise cancellation headphones where they can communicate with the microphone. You want to tell that story just real quick? Yeah. Yeah, no. And and I actually, this happened twice in my career now. Once was when I was with the county and then once as, as a consultant. You know, there's jobs in which we need to verbally communicate. Hand signals don't work. We can't see each other. My job relies on what you're doing. Your job relies on what I'm doing. And so we give them headphones or we give them earplugs and they can't talk. And so what happens, right? We're human. We're going to find a workaround to it. We're just going to pull it out and we're just going to work in the noisy environment. So this this company was really frustrated at the time because they said, listen, we have this program, we've invested in it, we do annual audiograms, we're seeing standard th- threshold shifts, we're, we're out on the floor, we're constantly preaching to the employees, please wear your stuff, you know, we've offered them different types of earplugs and nothing's working. Well, the simple question was this, let's go talk to the employee, let's ask them why it's not working. And they said, well, because I got to hear him 20 feet away to tell me when to load the next piece into the equipment. So what we did is we found noise canceling headphones and the technology has changed so much that you can get it where it will get rid of the harmful noises, but you still can hear the human voice. Or the option when I was working with the county was we had a longer distance to go. So we blocked out all the bad noises, but worked with a throat mic tied into a radio and we could talk hundreds of feet away from each other. And it sounded like we were standing right next to each other. And it's a small investment, but what could happen to that employee and what could happen to the company from those fines from OSHA will pay tenfold into buying the right equipment initially for your workers. Yeah, I think another kind of value add to that is, I think, two, two, two comments. The first being radios like that that go in the ear are often really valuable, too, because it's it's not uncommon to see individuals that wear radios, especially like if they work in maintenance in an area that's really loud. They have their earplugs in, so they crank the radio as loud as it can go so they can hear their calls. And then they'll actually have threshold shifts in one ear only that the radio sits on. 
instead of, you know, bilateral hearing loss in both ears. So using an integrated kind of ear microphone that's industrially rated with an NRR to be used at work, I think is a fantastic tool because, you know, for lots of different layered reasons, it's ultimately going to help people communicate, which is safer and not cause hearing loss. On the other hand, a common, very common question that I get, my AirPods are noise reducing. And I'm like, yeah, your your noise pods or your AirPods do reduce noise when you have them, you know, in noise cancellation mode. However, you know, they're not a an OSHA rated piece of equipment to have an appropriate NRR. And, you know, you can mow the lawn with your noise canceling mode on and turn up your podcast as loud as your iPhone will generate noise and and be over technically what that action level would be. So I think as long as you're using ones that are actually rated and created to be used at work so that they're not also producing noise above 85 decibels, they're, they're fantastic. But you gotta, you can, there's a little bit of research that has to go into that from a purchasing perspective, just to, to make sure that you're, you're not creating an additional hazard. Well, and that brings up a great point because I think that's the other issue I see when I walk around facilities is improper wearing hearing protection or improper hearing protection. Mm-hmm. So you know, improper hearing protection is I see people on the lines with music playing and they got it cranked up so loud that they could hear it over the machine. Well, you're just causing even more problems for yourself, right? The second being improper wearing and hearing protection, you know, kind of the rule of thumb is if I'm looking you straight on and I see the plug sticking out of your ears, you obviously didn't get them seated well enough to provide you any decent level of protection. And those are little pieces that people can look for as they're managing their employees and using those as coaching moments. Yeah, I think improve the environment. That's a, it's a big reason why the effective NRR calculation exists is to account for the human behavioral type of, you know, whether it's on purpose or not, you know, it, it helps to make sure that you're protected appropriately. And, you know, there's always an option too. If, if you're somewhere where it's really loud and you can't purchase a pair of earplugs with a high enough NRR, you can look at using double hearing protection. And when you do a calculation with earplugs and earmuffs, you do that ENRL calculation on whichever one has the higher NRR. So usually it's the earmuffs. They're more like 35 plus. So you would do the minus seven divided by two, and then you would add five for the use of earplugs. So you don't necessarily do each one's 30. So they're reducing 60. That's That would not be the way to calculate it. But to do an ENRL calculation with double hearing protection, you're going to add five for your secondary piece. So that's always an option too. But again, you know, when, you, when we look at the hierarchy of controls and what's most effective, you know, bringing the person farther away from the source or bringing down the level from the source is much more comfortable for me on an eight-hour shift than saying you got to wear two pairs of hearing protection. I think that's more appropriate when you're doing short duration tasks where the, the noise is much, you know, harder to control, like jackhammering or, you know, something like that. We know this brings another question up then, you know, kind of the cart before the horse situation here. I know how to, re- I know how to reduce it, but what number am I reducing from? And how do I get that noise sampling? You know, there's there's lots of things out there to do that, but obviously having a certified industrial hygienist is going to be your best option to get those data. Certainly. But, you know, we also see Apple and and uh, Android Marketplace has great, has a bunch of sound apps out there, but are they great sound apps? Or are we really getting effective numbers that we could argue to OSHA? Yeah, this it's a great uh, question to ask me specifically. I did my graduate research and my thesis work using noise apps and comparing them to traditional type two sound level meters to see, you know, how accurate are the noise apps really? Um, and there's a there's a couple of layers, and I could probably I could jabber about this for like three days because I think noise 
absolutely cool. And I'm constantly getting my noise out. I'll be like out to dinner or like sitting in the backyard. I'm looking at, you know, how, how loud are the cicadas today? <laughs> are they giving me hearing loss? Uh, my family, like, they like to give me a hard time about it. They say you're being nerdy with your sound level app. But <laughs> that being said, there are some that are better than others. There is one that's been created, published, studied by NIOSH, and that's also the app that I selected for my research. The NIOSH app is only available for Apple products. Part of that has to do with the technical pieces of how phones work, because some phones create noise like is part of their internal processors and certain phones have different microphone requirements than others. So for a whole, you know, slew of reasons, the Android market, when we look at reliability, because there's so many manufacturers and so many different, I don't want to say like less criteria, it's just a lot easier to produce an app on the Android market than it is on the Apple market because of the specifications that are required. NIOSH only uses Apple devices, and they tested it in their lab settings to be within plus or minus two decibels of a type two sound level meter. And that's also, can you know, for the most part, consistent with the research that I did. That being said, you know, if, if you know, you had a standard threshold shift at your facility and OSHA showed up and they said, you know, show me your noise monitoring data, show me why your people aren't wearing hearing, you know, protective devices. And you said, well, I checked it with my app and it was only 84 and not 85. You know, that's certainly not going to cut it. But, you know, if you got an app out and you were at 75, you know, you can have a lot more confidence that you're you're not overexposing people than if, you know, you're anything above 80, if you're using a NIOSH app on an Apple device. So I don't want to speak to the literally hundreds of other apps that are available in the market because I've read lots of papers on them and the, you know, they're just, they're not as accurate. The specifications aren't as tight. There are external microphones that you can plug into your phone and it's less for like an occupational application and more so if you were doing like podcasting or like recording videos or if you wanted better audio from your phone. When I did my research, they plugged into the headphone jack. So I think now that iPhones don't have headphone jacks anymore, you would have to use a converter to use the external mic with your phone. And at that point, when you look at the cost and the fact that even with an external mic, it's going to be more accurate, but you're probably still going to have to hire someone to come in and take, I don't want to say real measurements, but, you know, use a piece of equipment that OSHA would approve of. I don't know. I don't know if they make the, when I did the research, it was a couple of years ago. So I don't know if they have a new microphone that would plug like into the, the lightning port. But there, you know, there's a couple different things you can do. But that being said, the, the phone on its own was close. I mean, it is okay, but not defendable. Right. So, and, and there are test equipment that you can get out there too. But the other piece you have to take in mind is when's the last time you had it recalibrated and are you maintaining that piece of equipment? Yeah. It's like any other tool that we use, we have to maintain right. it and make sure it's up to current spec. Like my phone's battery could be dying and it could impact the results. So like, you know, it's, it's, it's okay, but it's, it's really, it's a good screening level tool to decide if you need to call someone like a consultant in to do traditional monitoring for area levels. And then ultimately dosimetry, because I don't use the same piece of equipment to measure area sound that I would to measure someone's exposure over their entire shift. You know, and sound is is sometimes easy, easily detectable, right? The banging of a machine, the air compressor running, the jackhammer, the lawnmower, those are all low-hanging fruit that we can easily identify. Um, and I'm always a believer in learning something new every day. And, and during your presentation, I learned a little more about a subject that I really haven't explored and I'm excited to talk about today, and that's autotox, autotoxins, which is 
a way that we can have some hearing loss from chemicals that we're working with. So it's not as obvious as the machine banging next to me. There's actually things in the facility that could have effect on our hearing loss. Yes, there are solvents and metals. And another thing, too, that when, you know, when we talk about autotoxins that um, other people might be interested in, there's lots of medicines and drugs that are also autotoxins. So you can have hearing loss due in tinnitus, which is ringing in the ear, which is a bit different than like actual hearing loss. You can have autotoxic effects from metal, from medicine as well as chemicals. So, you know, occupationally, it's a bit easier to control because if you identify that the autotoxins are there, then we're going to take these steps to be doubly protective than we would be in a normal um, climate. But sometimes medicines that do have autotoxic properties too. It's a, it's a bit, a lot of the times they're related to like chemotherapy, the like more common ones. So they're, they're interesting because you have to look at, does the benefit of the medicine outweigh the potential for there to be hearing loss associated with it? So there's lots of different substances that are autotoxic. Occupationally, some common ones, um, lead, mercury, carbon monoxide, hydrogen cyanide, there's a, there's a variety of solvents like toluene, xylene. So things like that would typically be in areas where there would be like painting or ink um, are some of those common industries that have autotoxins. But I mean, if, if you have propane powered forklifts operating inside and you have never evaluated carbon monoxide levels, or if you have other pieces of industrial equipment that have combustion engines and aren't electrical, uh, you could have, you know, carbon monoxide present as well. And kind of, the the numbers piece of explaining autotoxins is that you you if you have noise at or above 80 decibels it's recommended by the US Army Public Health Command that you put people in a hearing conservation program whereas OSHA would only require it at 85 so you're actually having the amount of noise you can be exposed to and it's recommended that Anytime you're at more than 50% of the limit for that chemical, whatever the ototoxin is. So if you're more than half of the limit for ototoxin, it's recommended that the noise also decreases by half. So it's pretty dramatic measures that need to take place to protect hearing because in tandem with noise, ototoxins work synergistically and cause hearing loss at much quieter levels than someone not around ototoxins. So kind of if, if you do have ototoxic risk, the first thing is to look at your safety data sheets or your process knowledge to identify, you know, if you have them. If you do, try to get rid of them is the next best option to substitute out a different chemical or to use a different product to try and avoid having the ototoxins present or, you know, look at ventilation, enclosures, distance before um, ultimately looking at, you know, some administrative controls to track employee exposures, document what those exposures are. You probably need to do monitoring a lot more frequently and, you know, just have a lot more controls at even lower levels than would be anticipated at other locations. Because, you know, the risk that you run if you don't do those more proactive things is that people will lose their hearing and then you'll just have threshold shifts and have to, you know, implement controls on the back end. So it just, it's, it's better to start to look at, you know, implementing the whole hearing conservation program at lower levels proactively if there's nothing you can do to get rid of autotoxins. So with the autotoxins, just a couple pieces as we start to wrap up today's podcast, is it inhalation or absorption or is it both that we're dealing with? That's a great question. And it's both. And, it, you know, if there's chemicals that it depends, it's, it's different for each one, but yes, inhalation and dermal exposures 
even more so you would need to take dramatic measures to protect people because then you know you're you're hitting it from three different directions instead of just one so for each one you would need to look and see if the skin absorption notation was present and if it was then certainly be taking you know measures even quicker or more dramatically as far as you know PPE would need to go for from gloves and potential chemical splashes and things like that because you know, the exposure will compound exponentially quicker if it's a skin absorber and inhalation risk and causing here and there's noise so yeah that, yes definitely you know, much more aggressive in your approach to to get rid of the exposures in that in that situation yes you said something else that i just wanted to hit on for for our members to think about if you have your hearing conservation program going and everything's happening there and you're seeing those standard threshold shifts there's a reason that we do two tests right we do the initial test to see where you're at if you have above that standard threshold shift you know was the person sick were they at a rock concert the night before those sorts of things but with the autotoxins is that something that we should be investigating or at least having that conversation with our employees about because they may be taking medications that aren't causing the hearing loss based upon work, but based upon the treatment that they're receiving outside of work. Potentially, that would be something that would need to get reviewed post initial audiogram. So until you have a confirmed threshold shift, yes, that would that would definitely be something that would be worth reviewing. Sometimes, you know, occupationally, though, that some of that type of information is protected by HIPAA. So it poses some challenges as an industrial hygienist versus like an occupational nurse as far as what does and does not need to be disclosed. And I did not a HIPAA expert. So right. <laughs> sometimes I so but between like the, you know, the licensed healthcare provider, or the person reviewing the audiogram. Uh, yeah, that would definitely be worth discussing or bringing up before it was a confirmed threshold shift rather than just the the you know because like you said there's lots of different reasons and if you you know perhaps bring like one of those hearing mobiles on site to do the hearing testing and you know someone's car alarm goes off in the middle of the test and then they fail the test well then you, you test again just to to make sure before it's a, a confirmed threshold shift but yeah de definitely worth reviewing as part of that process and and totally recommended that you would be providing audiograms to your workers at lower levels then OSHA would require if you do have autotoxins present. And that's that 80, that, that 80 decibel number instead of 85. All right. Well, always learning something new. It was great having you here today with, with us, Marissa. I'm sure we'll probably be reaching out to you for uh, some future podcasts too. You're just a wealth of knowledge. We appreciate all that you've done here for Portage hey. County and for the safety world. Uh, with that said, I want to tell everyone, have a great day and be safe. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more episodes, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Podbeam, or Stitcher. To get new episodes sent directly to your phone or smart device, be sure to subscribe. To learn more about how your company can earn up to a 4% Ohio BWC premium rebate by becoming an active member of the Portage County Safety Council, please visit our website at www.portagecountysafetycouncil.wordpress.com. The preceding information is for entertainment purposes only. Views expressed may not reflect the views of any affiliated or sponsoring individuals or organizations. Listeners should carefully weigh information provided and seek advice from an appropriate professional before implementing. Listener discretion is advised.